All right, I was not good earlier. Uh, somebody reminded me, or asked me if I knew, and I, I did know, I did know, and I forgot to remind you that uh, Mr. Cook had a stroke. I think I sent that out from Belize. And so you did know that, uh, but we need to remember to pray for him. I just want to remind you. Um, there are a great many things to cover this morning. Uh, it is not probably going to be the message that you would think. <laughs> we prayed for you earlier. <laughs> Good to see you. So, we come to a passage this morning that is very familiar to most of us. And we have our, our, our past experiences with it. We have our preconceived ideas. We have many things, most likely. But this morning, I want to take a look into this passage that I can assure you is going to be challenging. And it is meant to be that. So without doing anything else, let's look at the text of the, of the chapter 1 Corinthians 13, then I'm going to give you a little background, and then I'm going to tell you some things about it and cite some other scriptures for you, and then we're going to unpack that, and about 12.30 or 1 o'clock we'll be through. Okay? Um, now, this is another one of those occasions where I'm going to, I'm going to quit, but I'm not going to be done. Um, it, there's just that much here. So y'all will have to break the rest of this down in, in small group discussion. Uh, that group will meet uh, this afternoon at 5, of course, the next Sunday morning. Uh, got all of that taken care of, so everybody's in good hands. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and go over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now a little background. There was a great squabble going on at the First Baptist Church of Corinth. I know they were Baptists because they were fussing. Okay. And you cannot look at this chapter, you should not look at this chapter without bringing into your examination chapters 12 and 14 because it is part of that discussion. Paul is addressing some errors in the church. 
And he is addressing this church just like Jesus addressed the churches in Revelation. You may recall that when Jesus spoke to those churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he used images from their own communities, their own economies, their own surroundings in order to communicate the truth to them. He gave them things that they could readily, readily grasp and identify so that they would understand the truth that was being communicated to them. And in this case, this is also going on. Paul is using things that not only are going on in the Corinthian church, but he's bringing things to mind from their local economy. Now, just let me start with that one. They made polished mirrors in, in Corinth, okay? And he says, I look into a, I see dimly, I see a, a poor reflection, okay? And he's like, likening that to what we see, to what we know. We can know something, but you know, those polished metal mirrors didn't even compare to looking at one's reflection in a still pool of water, did it? A lot more detail in that water. And then there's even more when you see it, you know, up close and in person, okay? And so he, he brings that to their, their thought process. The other thing that was going on, as you know, Paul is addressing the use of spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, we learn that every believer has a spiritual gift, at least one. Those spiritual gifts are given to the believer by the sovereign choice of God. You don't choose your gift, okay? And so they were squabbling among themselves saying, well, you know, I got the best gift. Y'all are second-class Christians. Look at what I got. Look at me. And not only were they doing that about the gifts that they had, the sign gifts, the prophesying, the, the, the speaking, the preaching, and the tongues gift were at the forefront of this squabble. And so they were, and I hate to go down this road because it'll take too much time, but some of this junk still goes on today, particularly around the gift of speaking in tongues. And that's where Paul starts. Because they were saying that you, you ought to demand that you ought to have a marked part of your spiritual life and that you have arrived, spiritually speaking, when you can speak in tongues. And there are still people today who, who teach that errant thought. Now, if the gifts are given by the power and the sovereignty of God, and they are, chapter 12, then I cannot demand of God which gift I get, right? And I cannot impose upon you and say to you, as many do still today in the year 2021, well, you're not really as good a Christian as you should be because you have not had the gift of speaking in tongues dropped on you. You have not had God's second blessing. That's what people call that today. And it's a demanding that God give a certain gift, and he doesn't do that. Can you demand of God? You cannot. So that in itself shows you the error that's still prevalent around gifts today. Now, when you have a gift, as we learn many other places in Scripture, God's intention for that gift is for you to use it, whatever it is. God knew that it was the best gift to give you no matter what you think about it. Think about that. And what God expects each of us to do is to use the gifts that he has put within us. It's the power of his spirit at work in us. And he says for us to use those gifts for the building up of the body. We're not supposed to go around and, and, and doing, 
you know, all the negative sides of this chapter over our gifts. You know, whatever the gift is, whether it's, you know, preaching, teaching, pastoring, apostling, you know, whatever, pick one. It's not about me. It's not about good old number one, which we are so good at doing, right? And, and, you know, people who've been in the church a long time, if they've been taught well, they know better than to say things like that. You know, they would never say out loud, but, but they think that. It's up here. And does God know the thoughts and intents of the heart? Absolutely. Now, with all that said, let's look at a couple other things here. Um, there are multiple words. You'll engage these in your small group discussion. But there are multiple words used in the New Testament in the Greek language for love. And the highest order of love that could be expressed in the Greek language is agape. You know that. Okay, that is, a, that is the, the love that is sacrificial love. It is love that always cares for the, the benefit of its object. Okay? It is the God kind of love. And it's not accidental that Paul used this love word. You know, we have one word. You know, we, we, um, we, we love French fries and we love our wife. Now, hopefully, those are two different ducks. <laughs> okay? I hope they are. <laughs> and we love ice cream. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, we ought to have, you know, we come to a place like this. We say we love to worship. We, we love the word, okay? And one of the things I wanted to share with you this morning was a, an example of loving the word of God. Because in order for us to, to look into it, to know the Lord himself, we have to have a love for the word of God. And one of the things that just blessed my socks off this last week was that one of our pastors... He lives in a village down on the Guatemalan border, and if you've never seen the roads we have to go down to get to where we were, I, I, cannot ex I can't describe it to you. Um, it takes about an hour and 15 minutes once we leave the paved road to get down to the village where we were, and it's only a distance of 12 miles. Hour and 15 minutes to go 12 miles. <laughs> now, he didn't live there. His name is Vicente, and his love for the Word of God prompted these actions. What he did, we started class on Monday. He preached at his church on Sunday. He took a nap, literally. He left his house at 1 o'clock Monday morning and walked several miles to the nearest bus stop in order to get to the next village where he could attend class for the week and several of the pastors in that area come to, to, to the school site, and they just stay there for two and a half days while we teach. Now, you know, how many times, don't, I'm not looking for any raised hands, but you know, how many times, you know, we, we encounter a minor inconvenience, and that, that minor inconvenience is, you know, good enough to not gather with the family of God. Oops. Already started meddling, didn't I? <laughs> that happens all around us, doesn't it? And here I saw a person, now I knew this to be true of so many of these people, but it was just evidence, tangible evidence of a deep love for the Lord and for His Word. And that's really what we're looking at this morning, love for the Lord and for His Word. So let's, let's go connect all of that. Um, you remember when Jesus had the conversation with Peter, do you love me? The restoration of Peter, that's in uh, John 21 verses 15 to 17. And there's a little word play going on 
in that exchange between these different types of love. And so the human kind of love, what we call brotherly love, is not sufficient for a love that calls us to serve the Lord. That is not a sufficient kind of love for us to have for the Lord, and it's not sufficient for us to have for each other. But if you go read that interchange, you'll see it. Now, this agape kind of love is, is spoken of in John 17, verse 26. Um, and it is used of the kind of love that the Father has for the Son. I made your name known to them. There's, in, in this passage, there's a, a love that's on display for the Father, and, or between the Father and the Son. And then John 3.16, it's the same kind of love, you know the verse, God so agape the world that he gave. He sacrificed. He, he did what was good for the object of his love. And then you see John chapter 14, verse 21. Uh, the one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who agapes me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. All the same thing, okay? And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for Christ's love, this agape, compels us. It, it drives me to action. Now, you've heard me say a gazillion times already, love is a what? A verb, thank you. Here's the proof of that. Now, I've just condensed it to this little short reminder, but please don't take my word for it. Look right here. Love compels us. It makes us do actions. Love that's genuine always has a demonstration. If, it, if there's no demonstration, it might, be something, it might be something. It might be affection, but it's not love. Okay? We have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. So this is the kind of love that Christ has. And then you also see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great, what? Agape that he had for us. This kind of sacrificial love. You see this all over the page of the New Testament. And that kind of love seeks the welfare of everybody. Romans chapter 15, verse 2. Uh, did I miss one? I did. John 13, 34. Ah, Sorry. This kind of love is a commandment, okay? I give you a new commandment. This is incredibly important. Can't believe I did that. Commandment, agape one another. Well, I thought if I was loving that I, I, I had all this sentimental, mushy, gushy stuff. I had all these feelings and emotions, right? Is that what people think today? I can fall in love and I can fall out of love. Excuse me. I give you a new commandment. Now, you think about that. If, if this is a commandment, then it's something that you can do, not only that you can do it, but you should do it. And if I don't do it because it's a commandment, then I have a sin in my life. Ouch. 1 John 2, 7 and 8. I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command which is true in him and in you because in the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's talking about loving one another, this whole thing that we are supposed to do. And then Romans chapter 15 verse 2, each of you must please his neighbor for his good in order to what? Build him up. That's the function of your gifts. That is the function of the choice that we make to agape one another. It is a God-like divine thing that is a fruit, part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Change the word. The fruit of the Spirit is agape, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness. The verse goes on. Okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9. For the fruit of the light in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. See, these are the things that this agape love that is supposed to reside in us brings about. Okay? So what Paul is writing to these believers and to us is that notice how the chapter begins. If I speak with the tongues, if I have these great, awesome, incredible gifts, okay? Speak in the tongues of men or angels, and I don't have love, what am I? I'm just like sounding brass, a clanging cymbal, a gong. I, I, Debbie and I were talking about this yesterday. I said, you know, how many times have you heard, you know, somebody go out and you know, request a cymbal solo? <laughs> I don't know anybody that plays cymbal solos. Now, you know, an orchestra or a band, they got to have some drums and there's some cymbals in there, but they work in concert with other things, right? The cymbal solo, nobody's going to sit still for that very long. <laughs> I'm just making racket if I don't have love. Now, what if I do great deeds? What if I have deeds that are commendable and, and, and far exceed what other people do? It says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries. You know, I have this great ability to comprehend, to teach, to, to do the, the prophesying. And oh, I'm so important to the family of God, right? Who's really doing it? The Spirit's doing it through you, through His gift, through His power. That's who's really doing it. You're just the mouthpiece. But even though I can do all of that, if I don't have love, what is it? What about if I have this great faith? so that I can remove a mountain. You see, there were, there were people who in that church and in, in that community were thinking, you know, well, the greatest thing is this great faith that I have that God can do all these miraculous things. Well, God can do all those miraculous things, and He does tell you to live by faith. That's true, but it's not about you. And you see, if I could have so great a faith that I could move a mountain, but I didn't have love, then, you know, I might be able to move the mountain and drop it down right on top of Aaron. See, that's not loving, is it? See, everybody, you know, we talk about moving the mountain. You never go down to the end of that thing. Well, where's it going to stop? <laughs> you know, you got to have love because I'm doing these things out of a sacrificial interest in the welfare of the object of my love. Now, that's twofold. We'll get there, okay? And if I possess, okay, I have great sacrifice. I can give away and I can give, and I can give, and everybody can look at me and say, oh, they give so much to the church. Oh, they're so good. Don't have love. Oops. I gain nothing. Now, what you see in there, you look at the obvious, and it's what he's saying there, that there's a word that's used in, in the original language, and it's if I dole it out. You know, it, it, the idea there in doling out, if I give everything I have to the poor, it's like a mother feeding a child one spoon at a time. So if I dole out everything I have, and the idea that I get here is that of Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, the Pharisees love to pray and they love to, they love to, to give their offering. And, you know, the Pharisees would take their offering if they had $100 that they wanted to give. They wouldn't give a $100 bill. They would, you know, in our culture, they would give... Uh, they'd go get $100 worth of quarters. <laughs> and they wouldn't, they wouldn't just dump them in all at one time. They would, I, I'm, I'm not kidding, they would drop them in a coin at a time. And as they hit the plate, everybody in the room could count them. 47, 48, 49. Oh, my stars, he's given a lot. That's what they did. And so they're doling it out a little piece at a time. 
And Paul says, if I take everything I have and I dole it out and give it away. See, is that how your father gives? No, he does not. Your father gives how? Generously, abundantly. Your father delights in giving good gifts to his children. We're going to cover this verse too. It's on the favorite list. But he, he gives you, Luke chapter 6, he gives you into your lap, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's how your father gives to you. He doesn't give like Paul is talking about here. But he says, it's, catch the end of it, because the implication is huge. I gain nothing. Well, the, the implication there is if I do things right, if I do things in a loving way that God commands me to do, then there is great gain for me, right? Don't miss that. There is gain, because if I don't gain, then it means there's something that I can gain, right? Nod your head up and down like this, okay? <laughs> now, having said that, then Paul gives us two things that love is, okay? Love is patient and love is kind. Have you ever known somebody who was extremely patient with you? I hope you have. If they were extremely patient with you, they loved you, <laughs> right? Your translation may say love suffers long. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't give up on you. Love is kind. Love is not discourteous. Love is not rude, okay? Love is kind. It's it's stated for us both in the negative but in the positive. Love is kind. How many simple acts of kindness can we show to a world that doesn't know anything about the Lord or the gospel? Well, we can do a lot of things. And most often what the church at large does is we preach at people. And I mean that in a negative sense. We tell everybody, well, you got to do this, you, gotta, you can't do, you can't do. We give everybody a list of do's and don'ts and somehow we expect that to be attractive to the gospel and the kingdom. How different is an act of kindness in demonstrating the love of God? It's different. And one of the things that we say over and over and over, and it was, it was on display this week, we had, a, we had a group, we had a couple of ladies who were working with the women um, and teaching them some, some skills while we were teaching pastors. So there is a demonstration going on of interest for these ladies and their communities and particularly for the church. They wanted to learn what they were learning, not for their own personal gain, but so that they could uh, increase their ability to support the ministry of the church. So what we were doing, we were, we were demonstrating the gospel, which is necessary, but declaring the gospel as well. And those two things always have to go together. You need to demonstrate the gospel and it's much better if you demonstrate it before you declare it, right? Demonstration goes a long, long way. Now, there's eight things that love is not, okay? Two things love is, eight things that love is not. Love does not envy. Is envy a very small thing? No, not really. Envy murdered Abel, remember? One offering was acceptable, the other offering wasn't. And Cain's offering wasn't acceptable, and rather than repent and get his act together before God, he was envious of his brother, whose offering was acceptable, so he killed him. Envy is not a small matter. Envy made a slave out of Joseph. Think about it. Envy is not a good thing. Love does not parade itself. Some of your translations will say that. It does not boast. Okay? It doesn't say, you know, look at all this good stuff I'm doing. It simply does it. It's kind of like love comes out of the shadows, performs the act of kindness, and then kind of goes, steps back into the shadow. That's what it does. Love is not puffed up. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It doesn't, it doesn't have the big head, okay? That's a way to say that. Um, and 
It doesn't behave rudely. That's one of the opposites of what is kind. But then love does not seek its own. What does that mean? Um, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says that we should give honor to one another in preferring one another. In other words, if there's, you know, if the greatest uh, place of honor, and we don't do this, and I'm glad, but, you know, if the greatest, well, maybe we do. <laughs> I just thought of this. Let me turn this around. I'm going to make, I'm going to turn this, just slap right side out. <laughs> you know, the, the, there were places of honor at the Jewish synagogue, okay? And I was about to say we don't have places of honor in the Baptist church, but by golly, we do. <laughs> You know, the, the people that get to the Baptist church first get the choice seats. They sit on the back. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been a Baptist a long time, y'all. <laughs> so, you know, if whatever the preferred seat is, if I'm going to prefer somebody and I've got the choice seat when they come in, well, by golly, I, here, you, you do this. I'm preferring someone else, giving them the honor. You know, and it's like, uh, when Jesus told the disciples, when you, when you go to the banquet, you know, don't, don't take the seat down there at the right hand of the host, which is the position of highest honor at the table, and then be asked to move so you suffer embarrassment. You know, go down to the foot of the table, and then when the master of the feast says to you, hey, come on up here, then you, you receive your rightful place. It's preferring one another, giving to one another, and preferring one another over ourselves. And so... Philippians chapter 2 carries this same idea. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Now, how many times, we've all seen it, but you know, how many times have we seen folks in the church who are looking out for good old number one and they hurt everybody around them, don't they? They do. Love is not provoked. Mm. Can you think of a time when somebody on this page of scripture was provoked? How about Moses? You remember that? And because he was provoked and was angry, he wasn't loving the Lord like he should, and he certainly wasn't loving those, those mule-headed people he was called to lead. And he was provoked to anger, and it kept him from entering the promised land. Love is not easily provoked. And love thinks no evil. Now, you know, this one, this one hits everybody at some level. There's a one of the Polynesian cultures. I don't I don't track which one, but custom in this culture is to have a little memento that that the person hangs in their hut. And if Chad has offended me and I am mad at him, then I hang a little reminder of Chad's offense to me. And then when Aaron offends me, I don't want to forget that one either. So I go hang me up another one. And you know I I might have a whole ceiling full of reminders of all the wrongs that people have done to me so that I can't forget them. That's how they handle that. Now, you know, we would laugh at that, and I know you know better, but do we do that same little thing? Don't we have our little mental sticky notes? You don't believe what she said to me. I'll forgive her, but I ain't going to forget. Oops. I got my little sticky notes, right? And then what about I assign motive to people? Ooh. I see somebody do a thing, or I hear somebody say a thing. Well, well I know why he said that. I know why she did that. Well, bless Patty, you don't know any such thing. And love does not do that to other people. Love does not sign, assign an evil motive to someone apart from factual evidence. You know how many t-shirts I have? I mean, I got them in all multiple sizes and colors for things I supposedly did. Never did one of them. But, you know, I had good self-righteous church members say I did. You ever have that problem? It's called believing the evil or looking for evil to believe. And if you can't find it factually, just make it up. 
Been there, been there, saw that. But you see, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't, re, doesn't rejoice in someone else's misfortune. There was probably some rejoicing at misfortune going on last night towards the end of the ball game. Oops. <laughs> Y'all thought I'd leave that out, didn't you? <laughs> I'm rejoicing at misfortune. Well, you know, we can laugh about it when it's the ball game, but, you know, do people see the misfortune of others and secretly go, yes, they do that? Love doesn't do that. And then there's some other things that love is and does. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It believes the best about a person. If I see that action, I'm not supposed to assign an evil motive to somebody for it. I'm to believe that they are doing it out of the goodness and the kindness of their heart. Now, is that always going to be borne out? Maybe not. But I don't need to be anxious about whether they've got good motives or not because in the end, I'm not the arbiter of their motives, am I? No, I'm not. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. And when it says love bears all things, that word means to cover, okay? Love covers what? A multitude of sins. You see, if I can love someone and forgive them, then the sinful actions I can restore, I can love, I can believe, I can build up, that stops a lot of sin that might otherwise follow, does it not? It does. And if I'm genuinely acting in love towards others, it builds them up and diminishes the possibility of sin in their lives. Now, how do I want to be treated? Do I want to be treated with a sacrificial kind of love? Or do I want to be treated with suspicion at every turn? I know, I know how you want to be treated. I put that out there for us to examine ourselves. Now, you're going to do this in your, your group time again, but, and then you're going to talk about this. But I want to read for you, beginning in verse 4. And before I do that, let me remind you that Paul closes. I'm quitting it, by the way. I'm not done. But Paul closes with the three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. Why does he say love is the greatest of them all? Well, let me tell you why. The Bible says God is love. The further I go, and I shared this with the pastors this week, the further I go into the ministry that, that God has given me as poor a servant as I am, the more profound the simple things become. The things that we learned when we were three years old. God is good. God is love. You see, God has no need for faith, right? There's no need for God to have faith. What would he have faith in? There's nothing greater than him. There's no need for God to have hope because there's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he, that he cannot do. That's good. So God doesn't hope for things. He knows the end from the beginning. So the greatest thing that, that we can say, and the reason that Paul says this remains, is that God is love. It remains. What, what was at the back of the prayer that I prayed before we started about the love of God knows no height, no breadth, no depth, no limit, and yet in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us to know it. And a life, an eternal life relationship with the Father is an exploration into the limitless love of God. That's what it is. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of Him. Is God love? Is God loving me like this? Say yes. <laughs> Do I love everybody around me like that? Can I love everybody around me like that? In my own strength? Not a chance. Not a chance. So how do we get there? Well, let me tell you, and we'll be done. Beginning in verse 4. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. Christ does not envy. Christ does not boast. Christ is not proud. 
Christ does not dishonor others. Christ is not self-seeking. Christ is not easily angered. Christ keeps no record of wrong. Christ does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Christ always protects. Christ always trusts. Christ always hopes. Christ always perseveres. Wow. Now, what we're called to by this passage is Christ-likeness. That's the point. Don't get hung up on what you've been given. Be enamored with the giver and be like him. That's the point. Now, one of my favorite, one of my heroes of the faith, you've heard me say this before too, if you don't know anything about the man, look him up and read after him. Read his biography. The German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was uh, martyred by Adolf Hitler in World War II. He was an outspoken critic of the Nazis and a faithful pastor, writer, speaker, preacher of the gospel, and Hitler had him killed. But one of the things that Bonhoeffer said is this, that when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Think about that. Alive in my flesh, I cannot love people like this. But what does the gospel, what does the Lord Jesus Christ himself call us to do? He calls us to come and die. Paul said, I die how often? Daily. I die daily. Jesus said, take up your cross. That's the instrument of your own execution, by the way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, then you will lose it. Except a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, nothing good comes of it, right? But when it dies, it brings forth a crop, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100. And so what I have to do, and what you have to do, and what we have to do, is exactly what we've learned elsewhere in Scripture. To live like this, to love like this, requires that I die to self daily. Because you can't offend a dead man. A dead man doesn't boast. A dead man doesn't brag. A dead man's not offended. Yes? I die daily. And you see, in order for me to love others this way, I first have to love the Lord this way. I have to be willing to sacrifice everything. I've been commanded. It's a choice, people. When God says do this, it's a choice that I can make. This, this kind of love is not based on the emotion. It's based on the will. When God said to Israel, I have chosen you from among everything else to set my affection upon you. That's what the Lord did with Israel. That's what the Lord does with you. He sets his affection on you. He didn't love you because you're lovable. He didn't love me because I'm lovable because I'm not. That's my wife. God set his affection upon us. And he calls us in the first and the greatest commandments to set our affections upon him. Sacrifice anything and everything that's here for him, for his glory, for his kingdom, and lose our life in serving him and following him. And when I do that, then I can love my neighbor. I can agape my neighbor as myself. I can love the family of God in a way that benefits them and builds up the kingdom and gives my father glory. Now, this is not the message that you thought you probably would hear on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I know it's not, but it's a message that we need. Not because I think you have a problem loving each other, but because if the world is going to know that we are the Lord's, then what they need to do, what needs to happen is they need to see the actions that prove that. They don't just need to hear somebody talk. Talk's cheap. That's why love is a verb. Love, actions, prove what's in here. Amen or oh me? You have to decide. And respond, we will.